This is Jennifer Gonzalez welcoming you to episode 73 of the Cult of Pedagogy podcast. In this episode, I am going to share with you the story of how a Bronx teacher became an accidental urban gardener and ultimately grew what is possibly the most outstanding, life-changing project-based learning model you have ever seen. Okay, I'm going to be using a lot of superlatives in this episode. Greatest, most amazing, most incredible, because I can't figure out how to talk about this project without going a little nuts. I'm also going to be a little messy because I normally will write out the introductions to these podcasts and read them to you. And I have been putting it off all day because I can't quite figure out how to write it. I just need to talk about it. So my guest today's name is Stephen Ritz. About 30 years ago, he started teaching in the South Bronx. And if you happen to be not familiar with the boroughs of New York City, the South Bronx is sort of widely known as a very poor part of the city and of the country. It's been identified as one of the poorest congressional districts in the country. Uh, good jobs are hard to come by. A lot of families live well below the poverty line. And None of this really came as a shock to Stephen Ritz because he grew up in the Bronx. He moved away for a little while, but then he came back and started teaching. So he knew that this was going to be a challenge. And something about Stephen Ritz was different because he he saw the talents that the students had right away, and he saw the special gifts that they had. And from a very early time in his career, he he started giving them, you know, sort of real world projects to do. He started having them help him as a, a guy in his young 20s figure out the budget so that he could actually move out of his parents' house and get his own apartment. And then when he got older, he had them working on other projects. But after, you know, a couple of years of doing this, what he landed on was gardening, was urban gardening. And it happened by accident. And I'm going to let him tell that story of how it happened by accident. But over the years, what he started to do was have these kids grow gardens. They grew gardens sort of in neighborhoods nearby, and then they grew one on a rooftop and eventually started learning how to grow edible plants right there in his classroom in the South Bronx. And he, he kind of moved from class, class to class. He ended up getting assigned in different schools and, you know, a lot of hurdles that a lot of us have dealt with, but sort of kept going with this idea of, of how plants and the growing of them, and then the sharing of them could really just sort of tap into some of his students' oh, passions and qualities and, and help them find their strengths. He, he found kids that really took to the gardening aspect. He found some that really took to the design aspect, others that were really interested in sort of the, the budgeting and sales types of things. And they ended up, oh, they ended up, having their own farmer's market. And now, now it, it it's spawned into this, I don't even know if spawned is the right word, but it's grown into this huge thing called the Green Bronx Machine. They have culinary classes for kids. They partner with local businesses. They bring food into that community. And, and it even has grown into where, you know, some of the kids that have graduated um, have, have, you know, jobs as contractors now. And it's so hard for me to put into words how amazing this thing is. 
and and how it started just with a guy who said, "Hey, you know, we've got some seeds. Let's go plant them." And it he just kept taking advantage of the energy that he saw in his students. And so I'm not sure if my interview with him fully captures it, and I'm not sure if what I'm saying now fully captures it, but I guess the point that I'm trying to make with bringing him on and letting him share his story and urging you to please go and see the blog post that I have written to accompany this because it has his TED Talk in it. And I think when you see the TED Talk, then you really start to see the evolution of this. He... He's found ways to work with his local community and their talents and have them grow a whole sort of community and project right there within their own school, something that feeds the community, it helps to educate the students, it ties right in with the curriculum. And the the thing that I think is so great, it's not just that he did this in an area that was, um, you know, underprivileged or in a deficit of somehow, but I, I could see people doing this anywhere. It's it's obviously an amazing model for uh, for higher risk schools and higher risk kids, but it could be done anywhere. And when I saw what he was doing and I read his book, his book is called The Power of a Plant, and I'm going to have a link to that too. If you go to cultopedagogy.com/pod and Click on episode 73, you'll find all the resources. I'm going to have his TED Talk in there. I'm going to have a link to his book in there and uh, a link also to the project, the Green Bronx Machine Project, so that you can sort of experience it for yourself to see how he has worked this into the curriculum, how he's got these amazing looking tower gardens in this South Bronx school. They're part of the classroom. And this is a guy who has no background in farming or agriculture or anything like that. He says it all the time, I am not a farmer. But he just sort of accidentally happened upon this thing, which is anybody who's interested in project-based learning, this is such a cool model. So I w- I'm going to get to to the the interview with him, but I'm going to urge you to please go over and and take a look at his TED Talk too so that you can really see and, and look at some of the videos. This is just, this is such a great idea. Okay, I'm going to stop for an, I've got to do two businessy things before we get started with the interview. Number one, I would like to thank Kidum for sponsoring the episode. Kidum is a collaborative learning platform that enables teachers to plan, assess, and analyze learning all in one place. With Kidum's new student dashboard, teachers can empower students to take ownership of their learning. Students have the ability to track their own progress on skills, access and submit work, and communicate with teachers on assignments. Kidum is 100% free for teachers and students. To learn more, visit cultopedagogy.com slash Kidum. I would also like to thank you so much, and a whole bunch of people did this since the last episode, uh, went over and left a review for the podcast on iTunes. That just... I just love going over there every week and seeing that new reviews have been left because every time there's a new review, that convinces one more person out there that this podcast is worth listening. So if you've never done it before, go over to iTunes, find the Cult of Pedagogy podcast, click on ratings and reviews, and leave me a review. Thank you so very much. Okay, here's my interview with Stephen Ritz, who is the founder of the Green Bronx Machine. Okay. So, first of all, I would like to welcome you to the show. Thank you, Kylie. And we've got so much to talk about. So let's just, I want to just start with your very earliest years. You, you grew up in the Bronx. You became a teacher without any formal training. 
And right away you were tasked with teaching kids who had very little success in school. They were surrounded by drugs and crime, but right away you recognized their strengths and talents and you helped them discover these by giving them authentic problems to solve. Can you talk a little bit about some of those early projects you did with them? This was before any of the gardening you know, life in, in the Bronx was an interesting place back then, and no one tells these children that they are going to be both separate and unequal. But the world around us affords great opportunities, looking at, at work, looking at budgeting, looking at money, looking at the simple aspects that impacted these children's lives daily and connected them daily was absolutely critical to what I think is at the heart of all successful teaching. And that is relationships, motivating children from can't and won't to must and done. And that is the work that teachers do. Whether you are a sage on the stage or a guide on the side, that's how this gets done, by inspiring those to look deep within themselves and be the greatest you can be yeah. on a day-to-day -day basis and have impact on your life. The purpose of education is to move society and individuals forward. And when children get a sense of that and become empowered by that, that's what happens. So that was very much the focus of my classroom at a very turbulent time in the South Bronx. So, so what were some of the things you had them do before the gardening? You, you, had, them, you had them help you budget, help, them, help you figure out how to get an apartment, right? Right. So long before gardening, we were doing all kinds of hands-on activities. Whether and, and even, well, first it was theory. So some of it could be budgeting apartments. We were doing fish tanks. We were building bicycles. We were figuring out the angles of, of you know, baseball diamonds. We were looking at local factories, at machining and sourcing and understanding, you know, what parts related to whole. Uh, we were also in a very turbulent time socially and emotionally in New York City back in the broken windows days and, you know, post Bernard Getz. Mm -hmm. So we really looked at racial issues. One of the things that I was very inspired by doing was make, having children make connections. You know, the joke was um, in a world that was very much black and white to these children. And while I am a Caucasian for many of them, I did not come across as a Caucasian. I just came across as one of them because in some ways I was the oldest or in older. I even had students who were older than me, um, but I was certainly looked at them in some ways as a peer group. I was teaching 21 year olds at the time and mm -hmm. I was 21 myself. Mm -hmm. We shared the same interests in music, in sports, in culture. Um, bringing in Holocaust survivors and having children connect to other people who had been in pain in hurt and mm. been discriminated against and came forth and forward through that, I felt was critical to what I call a human ecology, a planetary ecology, and a sense of empathy and compassion, which moves people to a greater global good. So you knew right away how to connect to them and how to, and, and it, it's probably helped that you also grew up in the Bronx. Well, you know, I did grow up in the Bronx. I was a better athlete than most of them, if not all of them, and that was something that they neither expected, um, so I was able to neither expect it or really could even imagine. So having that little bit of leverage in my back pocket was kind of really cool. Um, the fact that I understood the language and I was equally inspired by the turbulent times and music that was becoming and art that was becoming, you know, part of the mainstream society of the South Bronx. You know, many people want to roll their windows up when they get in the South Bronx. I liked rolling them down. 
Uh, I loved hearing the music. I loved seeing the art. I loved connecting with people and a sense of spirit and resiliency that was the maker movement long before the mm -hmm. maker movement even happened. Mm -hmm. Realize we had children putting together music and creating turntables and block parties and going off the grid in ways that have become celebrated and world renowned today. Right. So you recognize those qualities and those talents right off the bat. It's just that you hadn't quite figured out the, I mean, I could see in, in, in your writing about those early years, you right away knew how to connect with them and how to recognize their talents. So if we fast forward a couple of years, you, you leave the state for a while, you get your teaching certification, and then you come back to the Bronx. So at what point did you start actually having students work with plants and gardens? Where, where did that start? So plants and gardens did not happen until after the millennium. I spent okay. about 10 years prior doing middle school work and crisis intervention work mm -hmm. and really developing relationships with a series of middle schools and communities across the South Bronx that were in turmoil due to a the, just the proliferation of cocaine and crack and the first generation of crack babies and, you know, the post- Ed Koch, Mayor, uh, you know, Mayor Giuliani era, where we really started looking at communities in a very different way. Some very pro-police. Um, I can't say I was in favor of everything that happened, but, you know, these were turbulent times in New York City, particularly in communities like mine, where the whole notion of, you know, highly policed in, um, communities really took over the notion of certain aspects of school. But, you know the forcing of crime into certain areas really had an impact. And again, the first generation of crack babies and crack children, which nobody knew how to deal with, mm. had a phenomenal impact on New York City school systems and in particular, um, the community I was serving. Right, right. And and you, you have, it's so apparent that you have got such a love for this community. And and I feel like that is one of the key differences in, in your approach is that you are not somebody coming in from the outside to try to say to them, you know, here's how we do it in other places. Let me come in and save you. You, you want to take this community and have them use their own resources and make their own community. Um, right. I'm a big believer that, you know, people don't need a handout. Well, some people mm -hmm. want a handout, but mm -hmm. what people need is a hand up. And mm -hmm. it's about inclusivity. And we always talk about diversity and diversity means there's a lot of different tastes and a lot of different things going on. But inclusivity means, you know, you're asking someone to dance with you to their music and yeah. celebrating them. So, you know, people want a seat at that table. The table is sometimes so far removed that we've got to create our own table yes. um, because people don't understand what our table is. So creating our table in a community where people can own it was absolutely tantamount. And that was the key to my success, creating relationships and realizing and, and understanding what human potential is. No child rises to low expectations. Yeah. So we've got to set the bar as high as possible for all children at all times. I'd rather fail at a high, at a high you know, in point, in point level than succeed at a low one. Right. And on my sleeve, I wear this belief that people should not have to leave their community to live, learn, and earn in a better one. And neither skin color nor zip code should determine outcomes in life. Access to education should. And we need to do a better job. And if nothing else, people knew from the minute I walked in that I was determined to do a better job, a more local job, mm. and was absolutely driven 
by a love for the community and for the people that I serve. Well, that's that's apparent on every page of your book. So take us to to the point in the in the millennium where or after the millennium when you when you started to really kind of drill down on the gardening. Well, I got to gardening by mistake, <laughs> and I still say I've gotten to gardening by mistake. Uh, I'm not a farmer. I'm a people farmer. Mm-hmm. And I think things that don't kill you will ultimately make you stronger. My wife and I, as we share in the book, suffered a series of tragedies. We went from twins to one to none. I also had some of my own students pass away. And, and, and that was catastrophic. And just simply to circle the wagons around my family, I, I opted out of the school. I just couldn't return to the site of so much tragedy and so much personal pain and wanted to be closer to my own family. And I felt that the half-hour commute, um, that if I had a walk-to-work situation, uh, I could have a half-hour extra in the morning at home and a half-hour extra in the evening whenever I chose to leave or whenever I chose to come home. It would still save me an hour a day that was better spent at that point with my family um, just circling the wagons around some very critical needs for all of us. Yeah. Only to take a job within walking distance to my home simply because it was available and walk into the wor- one of the worst high schools in all of New York City at the time. And that's how I got there, totally by mistake. A high school with a 17% graduation rate, 256 felonies a year, 18 deans of discipline, 48 school safety officers, 18 armed policemen. It was insanity. And again, you know, whether it's design or default, when you have over 4,000 young people from very disparate and diverse, unsuccessful backgrounds jammed into a building that was designed to hold no more than 1,800 um, knowing that that school is going to be closed, that's not the recipe for success. So lo and behold, I, I by accident, one day I'm teaching and I had 17 overage, undercredited youth, many of whom came to me via the criminal justice system, um, and literally was got called to the principal's office that someone sent me a gift. And that gift was a huge surprise for me because I was so excited thinking, wow, people knew I had done all this Herculean work in other communities. Maybe they, maybe this was a lifeline. And I go running down to the principal's office like a boy on Christmas morning, get this big box. And the secretary, Miss Denise, is there. She's like, Mr. Rich, look, you've got this great big box. And no one could be more thrilled than me to see inside this box. In fact, I was so excited, I didn't even take it back to my classroom. I ran outside of her office and said, thank you very much, and opened it in the hallway. And in the hallway, I open it, and I look inside, and there are like hundreds and hundreds of onions. And like, <laughs> what are these little onion things? This is absurd. I've got a bunch of 17, 18, and 19-year-olds who are ready to kill each other. These things are projectiles. They're baseballs at best, and they surely stink. Um, so, you know, my, my, my high hopes were instantly just cut at the knees, and I walk into class with this big box, don't say boo to the children, take it, throw it behind this huge radiator that probably had three quarters of an inch of paint coating it in between the window and just forget about it. Or as we like to say in the Bronx, forget about it. You know, and I certainly forgot about it. Six weeks later, um, there's an incident in class where a very big, powerful, strong, tattooed girl finally has enough taunting from this very annoying, skinny little kid. And Chairs go flying. 
Um, we had a protocol for situations like that in my school. It's called duck. And <laughs> in slow motion, I see my career ending. <laughs> you know, Carol goes charging across the room. Gonzalo jumps up, this skinny little kid, and goes running over to the radiator. And I'm like, this is it. It's over for me. Um, he's reaching under the radiator. There's something there. And I didn't know what he was doing. And all of a sudden, hundreds of flowers fell out. And he picks up this stem of a flower. Like, and it turns out, I didn't even know what they were. They turned out to be daffodils. Um, uh -huh. This beautiful yellow gold flower on this long yellow stem and starts waving it at her. And the whole class laughs. And I'm like, what the heck? You know, I mean, in my mind, I was thinking probably a little more graphically, but I won't say it on radio. And I'm just like, thank you, Jesus, that there's no gun, there's no weapon. And the whole class is going crazy. Carol stops dead in her tracks to look at this flower. Gonzalo's waving it at her. And that's what we call in the South Bronx a teachable moment. <laughs> you know, how do, how do you make magic out of that? But thank God no one got hurt. And all of a sudden the boys saw all the, the box was wet and moist from this broken, decrepit radiator. So the whole thing started opening. It was just that critical moment. Flowers started falling out from under the radiator onto the floor. The boys went to pick them up and started giving them to the girls. The girls said we could take these and sell these and give them to their mother. But, you know, the fight never happened. Mm. And all of a sudden, you know, out of chaos came this incredibly opportunistic, wonderful community moment. So right then and there, I realized we were on to something. I didn't know what it was, so we figured the next logical step would be to look inside the box and see more. And we found out that, you know, my students were, had been invited. People knew I'd been doing all this community work on a variety of levels, and New Yorkers for Parks had sent me these hundreds and hundreds of these things called bulbs. <laughs> they weren't onions. They were, in fact, bulbs. And the heat and the steam and the sunlight that came in from behind the radiator in the window spot was enough to what's called force these bulbs. So we had hundreds of flowers, and we figured we should show up where we were supposed to and plant them. It turns out that my students and I had so much fun that we went on to plant, I think, 15 or 20,000 bulbs that year across New York City hmm. to commemorate 9-11. And the 17 kids who no one else wanted in the school, who dubbed themselves the Ritz Fits, uh, went on to win an award from city council who somehow mistakenly took them as the gifted and talented program, which was absolutely awesome wow. because it demonstrated what the potential within these children could be. Right. And that was the start. And we started with basically ornamental gardens. And back then at the turn of the millennium, there was a lot of abandoned space, unproductive space. I like to say negative urban space, mm. things where places where things were happening that no one really appreciated and didn't serve a greater good. So my students and I became very adept at getting in there and transforming unproductive underutilized spaces into highly productive aspirational places and those who are apart from success somehow became a part of it and regardless of race creed gender sexual orientation and oftentimes even gang affiliation we went from being a 911 moment in the community to a place where everybody loved and adored us and we started what i call falling up the ladder of success and the rest was about making epic happen but no i didn't know anything about vegetables mm -hmm. until later but the one thing that people in my community do know of across the board is hunger. Yeah. And that's when it all started to come together because there is tremendous food insecurity where I live. 
So my students, if they weren't hungry at one point in their life, had been hungry and on a day-to-day basis know someone who is hungry. So when we learned about growing food, that was a game changer. Okay. And it, and did the growing food start in your actual classroom or, or was that the banknote? I'm trying to remember. No. So growing food actually started at a community garden where we had this notion that we could, in addition to learning kind of landscaping skills and tree pruning skills and realize post Giuliani came Mayor Bloomberg. And I'm actually a huge fan of Mayor Bloomberg. I don't agree with everything, but I think he has really helped transform this city to a better, more prosperous, more inclusive place um, with a great deal of vision. And this was a time where we was talking about green roofs, all kinds of things, a million, you know, a million tree initiatives. New Yorkers should be five minutes from parks. And these represented living wage jobs for my students. Mm. So these students started moving um, apart from the underground economy and oftentimes a negative economy into a living wage economy, into a fair economy. And that was game changing. And then when we learned about food, that we could grow food and we wanted to create a garden where we could grow food and give that food away to those in need, that became game changing for us. It, it, to people listening, what I want to make sure that they understand is that what you're talking about right now is, is almost like two decades worth of, of stuff. Well, maybe not two decades, but close to no, about a, a decade, decade. Yeah. about a decade. And then I learned about growing food indoors which was unbelievable. So literally, you know, my students and I, we, we converted six acres of cement into a beautiful farm, into a community garden. And that was really great. But what happened is the farm was most productive during the summer. Mm-hmm. And that was awesome because I got my kids jobs and my students started working. But as I became more involved in what I call systemic change, because I saw the potential for systemic change, you know, a lot of people can't take 17 kids across the city to garden. A lot of kids, a lot of teachers don't have the time, energy, and wherewithal to have access to a banknote building, right. to have access to someone. Half of my life has been the relationships I've built and leveraging them. But for people who come to work dedicated to teach and do the job that they're paid to do with passion, purpose, and hope, they don't have the connections I have. So I started to look at what was systemic, what was scalable, and the notion of bringing gardens indoors into classrooms and growing tremendous amounts of food indoors seemed incredible. It also seemed that there would be no loss of instructional time, mm-hmm. bell-to-bell instruction, and the ability to grow something greater where it needed to happen most in school. Right. Because so many people were excited to give me the students they didn't want in school as long as I took them somewhere else. I felt the need to have these kids in school was critical for everybody, including the people who didn't want them, to show them that they can and they will succeed and that no child rises to low expectations. It's about creating meaningful opportunities day to day in a classroom. So I gave birth to the first edible classroom in all the country. And then I continued to iterate it. And I'm at a very different place now using scalable replicable technology. Um, And no longer am I the school garden guy. I am the guy that wraps a whole school around an indoor academic garden. You know, and right. the art and science of growing vegetables aligned to Common Core, next generation science standards, and content area instruction really can transform the lens of public health, personal performance, and school systems. And we're seeing that happen here in the South Bronx and across, you know, across America and literally around the world. In 2014, I started iterating with technology that was in no classrooms in the United States. Today, we are in over 5,000 classrooms. In the United States alone, I was in Chicago yesterday, Pittsburgh the day before, 
We are scaling schools across Canada. Uh, I'm even in the Middle East. I'm in Dubai. I've been to Mexico, Colombia. So people are really responding to this notion of growing food aligned to growing students and academics, right. particularly in communities where people have food issues. And quite frankly, everyone has a food issue because yeah. food is a non-negotiable. So growing obesity, growing diabetes, all water resource issues, all of this, and realize I grow indoors four stories up using 90% less water and 90% less space. But the most important thing that I've grown beyond 50,000 pounds of vegetables and happy, healthy children is a better performing school. Right, right. And 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 what I'm going to do whenever I publish this is I, I'm going to provide people with links to where they can, because you now have um, a whole curriculum that they can that they can use. You've got, you've got lesson plans, right? That is absolutely correct. Okay. So that this can show, and, and, and I want to sort of reemphasize something that you were just saying, because you really put this together. I mean, it was very catch as catch can you, you pulled in a lot of community resources. You took donations where you could, and you, and you keep using this word iterate, which is really what it was. You just kept figuring this out. And now you've got it to where any teacher could do this. They wouldn't have to <laughs> pull together the resources. You've made it so that they can just take it and go. I've made it so that principals want it. Listen, we always have champion teachers. And for any champion teacher listening, I salute you. Thank you for the work that you do daily. But what I really want to do is create the next generation of champion teachers, people who need help, people who need resources, and people who have their principal's approval. So when I set out to create this curriculum and the work that I do, it took me about two years of volunteer time and I quit my job. I don't get a paycheck. And I sat down and put on the hero teacher's lens, but set out to do it through the principal's eyes. So we created a program and an integrated curriculum and the word is integrated um, that actually aligns to how plants grow in real time. It's not random lesson plans. It is scoped and sequenced and developmentally appropriate in line with what's happening with growth in a classroom. And it's aligned to subject area, content area. So when a principal walks in and says, where's your lesson plans? No, this is what the principal wants you to be doing in the first place. So odds are the principal's going to give it to you. And that's what I spend time doing, working with teachers, working with principals to create systemic change. Awesome. I'm so excited to send to send people to your resources and have them read your story. I think one of the most inspiring things about it is just it's it's your desire to keep to grow the community that kids are in and, and grow new opportunities for them right there in that community. That's just sadly it is it is an unusual model, but I hope it gets replicated by a lot more people. Well, I believe that we are the ones that we are waiting for. And, you know, after years and years of failed public policy, and listen, there's been a lot of successful policy too, so I'm not here to play the blame game. Mm -hmm. But Superman isn't coming. Uh, there is no man on the white horse. We are the ones that we're waiting for. And teachers in classroom are doing, are doing the Herculean lifting daily. But if you can engage parents, engage students, and create a culture of health, wellness, mindfulness, and real scientific inquiry. You know, the notion of planting seeds is just awesome. <laughs> you put a seed in a child's hand, you're making a promise. You're making a promise to that young person that that seed is going to grow into something great. And the fact that I'm doing it in a classroom and have just walls and walls and towers full of food is awesome sauce. Plus, you get to eat it every 30 days <laughs> or sell it. How cool is that? Um, you know, we're connecting people around this thing called agri culture 
And you know, the most important thing about agriculture, I believe, is the culture, school culture, respect, inclusion. And at the end of the day, without farmers and food, we'd all be naked and hungry. And that's <laughs> not a concept I'd like to embrace. <laughs> Hey, there's one more point before I let you go that I wanted to make sure that we emphasize, because this was something that I noticed so often. You you brought up this phrase early in the book, uh, I know a guy, which is, is was sort of your way of, of kind of from growing growing up in the Bronx that you you make use of the relationships that you have in the community to get what you need, to accomplish what you need. And I'm, I'm thinking now about the teachers who are listening who, how they may be thinking, oh, I could never pull this off. I don't have the time. We don't have the resources. And so I just want to know, like, how would I know a guy come into play for somebody like that? Listen, I believe that everybody is surrounded by tremendous resources. And while we all have heroes, the heroes that I know and love the most are the heroes right up the block. The grandmothers and grandfathers sometimes raising children, my neighbor, my next door neighbor, the parent who has three, four jobs, the grandmother who helps cross the children across the street, the school crossing guard. And that's what this is about, leveraging what's right in our backyard mm -hmm. to grow something greater. Listen, no one can do everything, but everyone can do something. And it usually starts with a phone call or someone right next door with an aligned greater good. And that's local ownership. And that's what this is about. Yeah. Local ownership. Yeah. Well, I can hear that you've got kids coming in the classroom, so I need to let you go. Um, is there anything, I'm going to be putting links to all of your stuff in the, in the blog post, but is there anything else that you would like to add before we finish? No, I mean, my story is a story of passion, purpose, and hope. And I believe that passion, purpose, and hope will get you far as long as you are endlessly resourceful and eternally optimistic. And I remain the CEO, Chief Eternal Optimist of Bronx County. And sometimes you just got to take that blind leap of faith. You know, if I can, you can, we all can, we are Americans, Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, African-Americans, and this is our moment. No one should and no one could hold us back. And for all the teachers who are listening, listen, we are teachers. We are the people who go from can't and won't to must and done daily. So get out there and make epic happen. Celebrate your successes. Congratulate your children. Set the bar high and be relentlessly unafraid to fail mm. because failure is what's going to get us all to a better place as long as we accept it and learn from it and move forward. I jokingly say I keep falling up the ladder of success. I'm having the time of my life doing it. And along the way, I keep saying, si se puede, yes, we can and make epic happen. So that's my purpose. That's my point. I hope you read the book. I hope you buy the book. I hope you share the book. It's called The Power of a Plant. 100% of the proceeds are being donated to public schools and public programming just like mine so that together we can grow something greater. Awesome. Thank you so much, Stephen. This has been really just such an honor to talk to you. No, thank you. Jen, I'll get you a bunch of stuff. Give me about a half hour. Um, I'll get you some links and stuff, and we'll figure it all out. And if you need more, if you want some pictures, I've got amazing pictures that would just uh, blow people out of the water. Just happy, healthy children doing amazing things in the place no one expected them to do it. I would love that. I would love that. We'll be in touch. All right. Thanks, okay. Connie. Remember, si se puede. You can do it. Make epic happen. Thanks for your time today. Thank you. To learn more about the Green Bronx Machine, go to greenbronxmachine.org. And for links to all the resources mentioned in this episode, visit cultofpedagogy.com slash pod and click on episode 73. 
To get weekly updates on all my newest blog posts, podcast episodes, and products, sign up for my mailing list at cultofpedagogy.com slash subscribe. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day. This podcast is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. To learn more, visit edupodcastnetwork.com.